0: Welcome to Pursuing Justice, I'm Harriet Hindell. For each of the next four podcasts, we'll be talking about a specific case of wrongful conviction, that of Derek Williams. In addition to that case, I've invited two other guests. As my purpose in doing these podcasts is to look deeper than just the wrongful conviction, we will be talking a little bit about preserving physical evidence, which was a key factor in the Derek Williams case and the impact of a parent sent to prison, a parent who was innocent. My guest will be a family member of Derek's and our full-time social worker at the Innocence Project of Florida. So now what I would like to do, is I would like to go over Derek's case before we interview him. He will be our next guest for the next podcast. But in order to appreciate his case, my thought was I would explain exactly what happened all those years ago. And this case began in August of 1992. The charge was kidnapping, sexual battery, robbery, grand theft of a motor vehicle, and battery. The sentence that he was given was life. He was convicted in 1993, and he was exonerated by the Innocence Project of Florida in April of 2011, which makes that almost nine years ago. He served 18 years of a sentence that he, of course, should never have served at all. The factors contributing to this wrongful conviction were eyewitness misidentification and what we would call unreliable science. And the, the place where this was was Manatee County, Florida, Derek was the 13th DNA exoneree thanks to the Innocence Project of Florida. Now that project has exonerated 21 men as of 2020. In 2011, he was the 268th person nationwide exonerated due to DNA testing. And now the total number, that means both DNA um, cases and non-DNA cases, as of today, the total number of exonerees across our country is 2,550. 502 people nationwide have been exonerated since 1989, to, uh, that's due to DNA testing. A female victim arrived at her home on August the 6th, 1992, around 5.30 p.m. It was raining. She saw a black male, she was Caucasian, holding a white cloth standing on her porch about 20 feet away. As this woman got out of her car, the man forced his way into her car, put her in a headlock while punching her in the face, and drove her to a nearby orange grove. On the orders of the assailant, the woman got into the back seat and undressed. The assailant took off his shirt, forcing the victim to put the shirt around her head in order to block her vision. Then the assailant sexually assaulted her. He tied her up with her own pantyhose, exited the vehicle and smoked one of her cigarettes. During this time, the victim untied herself and drove away in her car um, with the white cloth that the um, assailant had had in his hand and his T-shirt in the back of her car. She left the man who had attacked her in the orange grove. Law enforcement collected numerous items in this case, including a rape kit from the victim Her clothing, her jacket worn during the attack, the pantyhose, debris from the seats and floorboards of the victim's car, as well as the shirt and white cloth. Despite DNA availability at this time, and this was kind of the advent of DNA, no such testing was done. The victim initially described her attacker as being between 5'6 and 5'8 in height with a scar where his gut is. The description did not match Derek Williams' actual characteristics. He is 5'11, he had a scar on his back, and the victim stated she didn't get a good look at her assailant and also did not see his back. But after the crime, the victim was shown an inherently suggestive, what they call all suspect photo lineup, with 33 photos, two of which depicted Derek Williams. The victim identified Williams as her attacker. And after the two photos were removed, the photos of Derek laid out side by side in front of the victim, she spent 15 minutes studying them and she chose. Williams. The trial. At the trial, the state presented a three-pronged theory of prosecution. First, the victim unequivocally um, identified Williams as the assailant at the trial. The victim's description of Williams' height and the location of his scar evolved from her original description to match Williams' actual characteristics. She stated she had sufficient opportunity to view her attacker during the crime. So she contradicted her original testimony, as you can hear. Second, the prosecution offered testimony of a member of the Manatee Sheriff's Office. He stated he stopped William's Uncle Johnny in his blue truck driving back and forth in front of the victim's home after the attack. The prosecution used that testimony to infer that Williams had left a family barbecue going on at the time of the attack and was dropped off at the victim's home, and the uncle was waiting to pick him up, creating an opportunity to commit this crime. The prosecution presented evidence that Williams had a shirt similar to the attacker. The jury heard testimony of an analyst from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement that a hair of Negroid origin was collected from the shirt and could not have come from Williams. A witness who lived near the Orange Grove saw a shirtless man running near his home and couldn't identify Williams in court. He said the man that he saw was not wearing a short denim, I guess, denim shorts, um, but long pants contradicting the victim. The defense offered many friends, neighbors and family members as alibi witnesses to establish that Derek was at the family barbecue at his mother's home and he was not wearing a T-shirt similar to the one at the scene of the crime left behind in the victim's car. These alibi witnesses stated that Williams briefly left the barbecue for about an hour, but after the crime had begun more than two miles away. March 19, 1993, despite the questionable assertions in the state's evidence against Williams, he was convicted anyway. He was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. Derek spent most of his incarceration at Tomoka Correctional Institution in Daytona Beach, Florida. He kept himself busy working in industry, um, and in August of 2006, his sister-in-law wrote to the Innocence Project of Florida seeking help for her brother-in-law. He had then been in prison for 13 years. Throughout 2006 and 2007, the staff and interns at Innocence Project of Florida prepared the case. They asked the sheriff's office for the rape kit and other items of evidence, all collected before the trial, and that should have been retained in the Manatee Sheriff's Office. Thus began a 22-month endeavor to determine the existence of vital physical and biological material that could unlock the truth of Derek Williams' case. The Innocence Project of Florida was able to locate the victim's pantyhose and the T-shirt left in the car, which were entered into evidence and stored at the sheriff's office. Finally, in February and March of 2009, The sheriff's office provided the Innocence Project of Florida of proof of destruction of much of the Williams evidence, including the rape kit and the hair um, from back in, in 2003 when the items had been destroyed. So they indicated that they had been gone since then. The evidence had been in a vault at the First Union Bank in Bradenton. The Sheriff's Office had allowed the evidence to get moldy over a six-year period, and the entire contents of the vault, 3,600 cases, were cleaned out and incinerated. Now to post-conviction. In June of 2009. The Innocence Project filed a motion for post conviction DNA testing in the circuit court, asking for some items to be tested that were still there. In March of 2010, the court ordered the testing to be done. On July 6, 26, 2010, the lab in Ohio, who had done the original testing, issued a report. The DNA found on the shirt left behind was not Derek's. The state refused to agree to any relief, instead insisting that Williams was the perpetrator and that his convictions should stand. Given this posture, on August 19, 2010 the Innocence Project of Florida filed an amended motion for post-conviction relief asking the court to vacate Williams' conviction on two grounds. Number one, newly tested DNA on the shirt excluded Derek. And number two, the sheriff's office unlawfully destroyed key evidence in violation of Derek's right to due process under Florida and the U.S. Constitution. The state opposed the motion. An evidentiary evidentiary hearing followed to resolve the matter. The Innocence Project of Florida brought in Derek Byrd, a local attorney, as local counsel. A two-day hearing began on March the 14th and 15th of 2000 and 11, the Innocence Project of Florida received a fax on March 29th from Judge Mark Gilner granting Derek a new trial. The next day, state attorneys indicated they would appeal the ruling. Then state attorneys called the offices of the Innocence Project of Florida in Tallahassee on April the 4th, 2011, to say. They were withdrawing their appeal and dropping all charges. That night, Derek walked out of Hardy Correctional Institution, a free man reunited with his family. So that is the background to the case, and we will, of course, uh, be meeting um, Derek, but what? I would like to do now because um, the case centered around that that key fit, what we call either biological or physical evidence, which was so important to have kept in a good condition, good state, uh, preserved for the long haul in case of something like this. And it, it kind of got me thinking, um, and I I didn't know the answers to the questions I had in my head, is what, uh, what are the guidelines for keeping evidence across the country? You would think, possibly, that they were uniform, but you would be wrong. So I did a lot of research on this topic, and I certainly learned a great, great deal. So here is some of the information that I picked up. What do you think happens to key physical evidence after someone's convicted of a crime? Not necessarily someone who's guilty, but someone who happens to be innocent where it's extremely important. If you live in Delaware, Idaho, New York, North Dakota, Vermont, or West Virginia, you could be in a frightening position as those states Do not mandate the government preserve this key evidence needed for DNA testing. I I was absolutely shocked that there are no rules, uh, fast and, and, you know, uh, firm rules to say you must preserve this evidence just in case. So I don't know what those states do with the evidence, whether they toss it or not, but they are under no ruling to, to keep it. 43 states have passed legislation that compels that evidence to be preserved um, upon the conviction of a defendant. Rules vary state to state in terms of a specific time frame, like how long you must keep the evidence, and also for which crimes. So, um, some states are allowed to get rid of evidence between the conviction of a person and then a petition to retain the evidence because then it makes way for more evidence that comes in and many of these states cite storage space. We can't keep everything um, indefinitely. Biological or physical evidence is defined as skin, hair, tissue, bones, fingernail scrapings, teeth, blood, semen, or other body fluids. For a homicide, it is strongly suggested that the evidence be retained indefinitely. For a sexual assault, often evidence is retained to match the statute of limitations. But only 15 states out of 50 have a requirement that this evidence be properly stored. And that is a key word here, properly. So when we think of Derek's case, that the evidence became wet and moldy and they tossed it, uh, that obviously wasn't properly stored. Then there are challenges, I hadn't thought about this, for what's called bulk evidence. So what if there's a mattress involved? What if there's a sofa involved? Or a huge piece of carpet. What what did these states do with those large bulk uh, evidence, pieces of evidence? And only eight states have guidelines relative to this type of evidence. In an article in the West Virginia Law Review in May of 2018 that I read about the preservation of evidence, it stated that prior to DNA um, Prior to DNA in post-conviction cases, destroying physical evidence in closed cases was standard practice. According to this article, 356 people have been exonerated due to DNA in the U.S. 20 from death row. The Innocence Project in New York, the biggest project in the country, reports that 75% of its cases are closed were closed due to lost or destroyed evidence. That's a pretty high figure. Despite the reliability of DNA evidence in post-conviction cases, criminal justice officials strongly oppose a statutory duty to preserve physical evidence, citing it's too costly. Well here's, here's a question for you to consider. Here's my reaction to that. What happens when that very evidence proves that the person in prison is innocent? The state has had to pay for that person's incarceration and often has to pay for compensation for that person as well. So we are talking about thousands and thousands and sometimes millions of dollars Is that cost effective? So that's a question to think about, isn't it? 76% of all crimes, I didn't know this, are property crimes with no biological evidence. Only 1% of all crimes are rape and sexual assault crimes requiring a small amount of space for evidence. And we also know that 18% of rape kits are sitting on shelves, never Having been tested, and 14% of homicide cases have evidence that is untested. So I certainly hope that uh, you have gotten some background information on all of this. I found it very interesting um, to discover these things that I hadn't known before. Um, I did want to talk about uh, the impact of prison on children, but we're we're going to have. A guest in the next um, few podcasts who will talk about the impact of prison on Derek's family. I think we often forget that that the family is sentenced along with the person who goes to prison. They they serve a sentence too in their own in their own way. So we certainly will uh, address that. So I hope that you will stay with us for this series of. Podcasts about the Derek Williams case, um, which took place here in uh, Bradenton, and as I often want you to to do is um, to uh, please write to me at pursuingjustice uh, pursuing dot justice five at gmail.com. I would love your uh, your Uh, reactions to the podcast. I would love suggestions. And if there is someone out there who would like to tell his or her story, that would be wonderful. Um, Please write to me. And I promise you, I will write to you, uh, write back to you and see if we can work something out. So uh, I hope to um, hear from you out there, my listeners. And we'll see you next time on Pursuing Justice. Thanks for listening.